Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Today we go into week two of our sermon series that we are calling Surrender. Surrender. Um, this is always going to be a challenging series for us, not because on, on, kind of on the surface you go, well, that's fine, surrender, I get it, it's sort of a spiritual term, uh, it's fine. But, but we don't actually acknowledge that in our culture, surrender is, is really heavily despised. Surrender is not something that the American culture is real fond of. Um, we're a can-do people. We're a, a, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps people. Don't quit. Quitters. Quitters never win. And here I'm going to, for uh, weeks and weeks to come, I'm going to challenge you to surrender. And I have some evidence, uh, the reasons we don't like surrender, or maybe evidence that, that show you don't really like surrender, one of which we have an entire generation of men in the church whose favorite movie is Braveheart. Yeah. I mean, did you hear the grunts right there? Uh, I like that movie. What did he say? You may take our lives, but you will never take our freedom. He refused to surrender. How'd that go for him? Not great. Not great. Um, I'm from San Antonio, also known as the Alamo City, right? You know about the Alamo? It's the heart, the bastion of Texas liberty, where 187 brave soldiers representing the great state, the republic, the nation at that point of Texas fought off the invading Mexican army for 90 minutes until they lost in a horrible defeat. Um, they said, remember the Alamo, and they all, they all died. So the Alamo, remember the Alamo, they didn't surrender, it didn't end real well. Okay, that's two. Third and finally, in the 80s, the 80s brought you Corey Hart and his smoldering eyes. Look at him. Whew. Anybody remember Corey Hart? He first told you it was okay to wear sunglasses at night. You remember that song? Then he followed that up with a mega hit, simply titled Never Surrender. And I would sing it for you. No. Um, I thought about it. And that was his big thing, never surrender. And everybody loved this idea. Yeah, never surrender. She broke up with you? Don't worry. Just keep knocking on the door. A little creepy, stalkerish, no big deal. Keep going, he said. When's the last time you heard about Corey Hart? Hadn't thought about him in 40 years. So how did that go for him? I don't know. What is the point of all of this? In modern America, surrender is for the weak. No one surrenders. We don't like surrender. We, we vilify those who quit and surrender, and we glorify those who stick it out, persist. Losers surrender. Winners either win or die trying. Losers put in their backups. Winners complete the comeback and win the Super Bowl and marry the prom queen, right? That's our culture. I tell you this because, like I said, I'm inviting you to a life of surrender, which is um, profoundly countercultural and counterintuitive, and it's going to require us to do some surrendering week after week after week. So today we're going to be talking about white flag faith. I'm going to encourage you today to surrender your will. We're going to read out of the book of Matthew. It's one text. We're going to read uh, all at once, and then I'll kind of break it up in three parts. So just go with me to Matthew chapter 7. We'll put it on the screen for you, starting in verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it 
are few. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24, everyone who is then who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So I said I was going to break this into three parts. We're going to call them roads, relationships, and white flag faith. So first, these roads. Jesus talks about two different roads, a narrow road and a broad road. He says the the broad road, the broad way, the, the broad gate. That's easy. The narrow way, the narrow gate, that's hard. Tim Keller, in a sermon he preached in 1993, used an illustration, and I'm giving him credit because we're just going to steal it because it's better than what I could come up with. He said this way, he said, everyone grows up with language. Most of you were born into an English-speaking house. So let's assume that for a moment. You grew up speaking English. You heard English at home. You grew up with it. So it was easy. You naturally, when you started speaking, you didn't speak Swahili. You spoke English because you were immersed in it. You were raised in it. It was just easy. It was natural. Now, grammar, as we all know in English, is a whole different thing. But for most of us, communicating, communicating in English is easy and natural. It's just what you do because you were born into it. Now, if I invited you today, considering all that you have on your plate, all the things that you're busy with, if I said, I'm going to need you to learn Portuguese or Korean, or, you know, I could go on. You would go, ugh. Seems like a lot of work, though. It would be a lot of work. It would actually be really hard. They, there's a reason kids learn better than adults, because their brains are still squishy and ours are getting a little calcified. But you have to unlearn a lot. The more you learn, when you take on another language, you have to unlearn things. I have a 14-year-old in Spanish. She's second year in Spanish. She's going into, like, college Spanish next year. I don't know what she's doing. But she tells me all the time, I don't understand. Why is English this way? Because as she's learning Spanish, which is a romance language that makes sense, with like constructions and participles, and she goes to English. She's like, why are there nine different words that sound the exact same but mean different things in English? And I go, uh, what are you going to do? Is sped accurate as the past tense of speed, or is speeded? And I was like, well, it's sped, obviously. We looked it up. It's both, because, you know, English. (laughs) Speeded to my next point here. Hold on. Um, she has to unlearn things in order to learn a new thing. She has, to, she has to, to let go of an old to take on a new. She has to concentrate really hard to learn a new language because she was raised in the broad way of English, and now she has to kind of fight upstream to take on the narrow path that is Spanish. Jesus is saying this is kind of the, the story with our faith is, is you. You're, you're on the broad path if Christianity was just something you're born into. So you were just born into Christianity. It's not something that that you have to work real hard at. It happened naturally. I didn't even like think about it. I just kind of like I was raised in a Christian home and I kind of do the things and I check the boxes and it's, it's fine. Like I speak that language. Jesus is saying following him takes moving into something unnatural. It requires an unlearning. Following Jesus requires an unlearning of the way of the world in order to take on the way of Christ. It's a new construction. We talk a lot around here about swimming upstream. 
This idea that there's a mainstream, there's a main culture, and our job as followers of Christ is to swim upstream into that. Another way people say that is against the grain. You have to go against the grain. I thought it was a farming metaphor. I looked it up. It's not. Apparently, it's about wood, and people who work with wood know that if you work with wood, and I learned this, so if I say it wrong, forgive, you have to, uh, when you're planing wood, you have to go with the grain. To go against the grain, the wood will, will like, tear up. It'll, it'll, it'll jack the wood. And so you, you ruin it if you go against the grain. It's really hard. It's not good for anybody. It can be a little messy. You have to go, when you're planting wood, you have to go with the grain. Jesus is, in essence, saying, look, you've got to go against the grain with me, and it's going to be a little messy, and it might get a little hard, and it might tear up some of the things you built before. It might not meet your expectations the way you thought it was going to. But that's what I'm inviting you into. Which brings us to one of the most difficult things Jesus ever said, the thing that more sermons have been preached on and then people still leave kind of confused about. Um, so I'm going to try not to do that to you today. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And we go, oh boy, wait a minute. So you're saying somebody knew Jesus, and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says it again, not, uh, that many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? Didn't we do all this stuff for you? That's the evidence that we, we're with you which is moving into relationship here, Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. See, commonly, uh, evangelicals, we look at this passage, Lord, Lord, I never knew you, and we say, see, he says, knew you. So it's about relationship, right? Yes, maybe not the way we've thought of it. Jesus says, look at the things these people are doing. The people who are calling upon him, Lord, Lord. Look at the things they're doing. People on the narrow road and the broad road, people in the narrow way and the broad way, the narrow gate and the broad gate, they're doing the same things. Jesus says, look, you can be a real Christian and do great works in my name. And you can be a false Christian and do great works in my name. There's no differentiator there. We prop look, I don't know how many times I've cast out demons or prophesied successfully. Like, Zero might be an accurate number. Exactly. <laughs> and Jesus says, those who do may not even know me. What makes a relationship authentic? What's the relational differentiator between come with me into my rest and I never knew you? What's the difference? Start with the idea that they said, Lord, Lord. Like, we've talked about this before. Anytime you see double construction like that, this is uh, a passion. It's intensity. It's showing there's just an urgency to be spoken. And Jesus, Jesus, not to be confused, says it twice, right? The first time in their appeal to him, and the second time in their uh, kind of defense of their appeal to him. Lord, 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 Lord. This is an impassioned cry. This is somebody, you know, if you're about to get into a, a wreck and you go, no, 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 this is, this is that. You repeat the thing because it matters. It's intense. These are people crying out. And, and maybe the idea here is these are not dispassionate people. These are not lukewarm people that are on the sidelines being like, but didn't we know you, Jesus? These are people going, no, I, we're with you, aren't we? These are people that attend church more than Christmas and Easter. These are people that are crying out during worship. These are people that are weeping during prayer. These are excited people, emotionally involved people who seem to live with their hearts and give themselves over to others. This is the person that is appealing to Jesus. 
They're active in service and active in ministry. They say, we prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We do mighty works in your name. Jesus goes, who are you again? I love being your pastor. Um, I love the little things. Uh, I sometimes tell, I've told some people before that pastors are made in empty rooms. This is fun. Pastors are made in empty rooms. I like the little things. I like the one-on-ones. I like the hospital visits. I like handing you tissues when we're going through hard things. I like celebrating with you, praying for you. I like digging into the hard questions. I like walking through the deep valleys. I don't know why, but I love that stuff. I have some friends uh, every year that I'm part of a a retreat, this this sort of like little, I don't know, this band of subversives, really. Um, And we meet in Colorado every May. And these are like highly influential people. And they're publishing executive and mega church leader and uh, worldwide consultant. These are people that are flying all over the world. And, and somehow I'm in their little club. Um, and I'm in flyover country, right? They're like, hey, there they go. Um, and so we're talking about all their, all, everybody's lives. And we, we go through everybody's big struggles and problems. And it's just a safe place for these subversives to meet together. And, and they call me the town vicar which is kind of like a, you make, picture a priest in, a, in the English countryside just kind of going door to door and checking on people. And that's how they see me, and they say it endearingly. But they can't, they can't quite figure it out. They go, why are you so content to just like sit in the hospital room in the frozen swamp? Like, that's, you're good with that? And I go, yeah, that's what I'm made for. And Jesus looks at me to make my point clear and says, Kyle, that is in no way evidence that you're a true follower of me. Those are nice things. It's sweet that you do that for people. That's not evidence that you're a true follower of me. That's not evidence of your authentic faith. Because people who are committed, people who are in church every week, building habitat houses, serving the poor, loving widows and orphans, healing the sick, casting out demons, all in the name of Jesus— Jesus says it's very possible we get to the moment, and I say, I never knew you, though. I didn't know you. That's a relational statement, isn't it? So we need to make the clear distinction over what's the authenticator. Why why doesn't he know some and he does know others? What distinguishes true relationship with Jesus? What we know it isn't is a professed earnestness of belief. But I really mean it. Okay. Or... And this catches the other half of us by surprise, or the evidence of our action that supports it. Yeah, but look look at the stuff I did for you. I really meant it. The issue is actually one of lordship. The issue is an issue of lordship, of surrender. So answer this question, um, who is in charge of your life? Who's in charge of your life? And if you answer it honestly, most days... I struggle not to be in charge of my own life. I really like to be in charge of my life. I like to be in control of my day. And that brings us back to the narrow gate. Why is the gate narrow? I don't understand. Why does it have to be? Why is it hard? Because we are hardwired and in our modern culture especially trained to be walking that broad path of I'm in charge of me. Each and every one of us has been invited to live the life of you do you. You follow your heart. What does your heart say to do in this situation? 
What if that's opposed to what God says to do? Ah, my heart, I really feel strongly like, I feel like this is the right thing. I'm like, the Bible says it's not the right thing, but our culture says follow your heart. Today more than ever, you are born as royalty in your own little kingdom. You are algorithm, algorithmically curated to be the preferential overseer of your own little world. But our preferences don't always lead to life. They don't lead to flourishing, and we don't like that. We want our life that we choose to be the life that leads to ultimate flourishing. And when we get to a place, we get to a valley, often I say, I like to sit in the valley with you. I like to walk through that with you. I like to ask hard questions. When we sit in my office and somebody goes, I just don't know how I got here, usually we can look back and be like, where did we go off the the narrow path? It almost always lands on like, yeah, I can see that. Now, now how do we climb our way back? Because the life that I'm desired to want in my flesh doesn't lead to flourishing. I got a 10-year-old who likes sweet things. She likes sweet food. She is made, and she's like 80, 70, what, 70% water, is that what we are? She's 73% sugar. We were, the other day, we were going to do breakfast. I was going to make eggs and stuff, and she goes, Dad, can we maybe have pancakes, though? Yeah, yeah, we can have pancakes. Um, not coincidentally, she bought me a griddle that goes on top of our stove as like a hint for Christmas. She's like, hey, look at that griddle I got you. <laughs> It says pancakes on it. It's like, yeah, I get you. So we uh, start making the pancake batter, and I'm sitting there, and I'm about to pour the first pancake, and, and she goes, well, uh, Dad, could we maybe add some blueberries to those pancakes? And I was like, yeah, that seems like an actually relatively healthy concept. She was tricking me. And um, so I add the blueberries to the first pancake, and she's like reaching in the cabin. She goes, maybe some of this too? And she hands me sprinkles. <laughs> and it just kind of goes from there until we plate her... Uh, her breakfast, I don't know what it is. And I said, sweetheart, you have a sugar cake full of sugar bombs, and now what are you doing? She's like, I'm putting on the sugar sauce. And she's, you know, covering it in syrup. And I thought, her will, her preference, her will in life is delicious, maybe. I mean, cloyingly sweet, but delicious for her, and definitely not for her flourishing, right? If it was up to her, she might have that for every meal. And that's not good. But that is her desire. That's her flesh. That's her want. That's her will. Consider any common battle of the wills that someone would have with a child. Whether you have kids or not, you know what it's like. Bedtime? What time is bedtime? Well, it's always later than you think it is. (laughs) These days, parents deal with screen time. Can I have more screen time? And you're like, I don't know. What does that even mean? Older kids, curfew. Curfew, guys. What do parents say about curfew? Nothing good happens after midnight. What do kids say about curfew? Nothing good happens before midnight. These come in opposition to each other, don't they? I'm not going to tell you who's right on that. You all know. In any battle of the wills, a battle of the will, you know who is in charge by who submits to whom, by who surrenders their will to the other. So if I said no sprinkles, we're having kale. And she goes, I submit to this, Father. (laughs) You know who's in charge. If she goes, extra sprinkles, and I say, yeah, just give it a good, give it a good sprinkle, whatever. You know who was in charge in that moment, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. Calling me Lord isn't enough. Identifying my title is not enough. 
doing good things for me isn't enough. That is not what it's actually about. I don't mind those things. I appreciate those things, but that's not what this is about. It's about surrender. So when he says, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? He said, it's not reserved for those who call me Lord, but those who submit to me as Lord, those who treat me as Lord, those who do the will of the Father. So what we would say is this. We'd say surrender is the distinguishing factor in authentic saving faith. What's the differentiator between those who say, Lord, Lord, and don't enter, and those who do? Surrender is the distinguishing factor in authentic saving faith. Because it isn't about whether you're in relationship with Jesus. It's about the nature of your relationship with Jesus. And that's a huge difference. They called out to him. So on some level, they knew him or knew of him. But they didn't know him as Lord. I'm in a relationship with the waiter at the restaurant, but he's there to serve me, and I tip him if he's lucky. I'm in a relationship with the physician that I take my children to, but she provides goods and services for a fee. We live in a transactional world. I do X and I get Y. That happens in relationships sometimes, but if relationship is the foundation, we're okay. It depends what the foundation is. There are relational transactions, but there's also transactional relationships, and they are very different. We talked about it last week. You can go listen to 30 minutes on that if you want to. Jesus isn't here to provide goods and services in exchange for your worship and deeds. That's what you need to hear. Jesus is not here. He did not show up to provide goods and services and a, former, a future in heaven so that you might perform certain words and deeds and worship acts for him. That's not the deal. It's not transactional like that. Jesus is not here to be your religious transaction. Jesus is not here to be uh, manipulated or leveraged into getting what you want out of life so that you say a magic prayer or paint an orphanage and then he goes, ah, I guess I'll look past your sin. That was nice. So let him set the parameters. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is he actually looking for? Jesus, what do you want? Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says you got to surrender your life and your identity. Paul picks up the cause from there in Romans chapter 10. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, and everyone who calls in his name, the name of the Lord, will be saved. And you go, wait, but you just said if they said, Lord, Lord, they may not go, they, they may not be in. And, and Paul's saying, if you call in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. What's, what gives? And we have to do something here. We have to go idiomatic writing and idiomatic expressions. Paul is not saying that if you believe in the organ that pumps blood through your body, and you confess with, confess with the vocal cords, that live inside your neck, then that's the check, check. Otherwise, it'd be easy. I believe it in my heart. don't really know what that means, but I feel like it pumped a little faster when I thought that thought. And then I said it out loud. I'm good, right? No, he's talking about a whole life belief, a whole life uh, evidenced lordship. If I, if I confess you, like someone on a witness stand confessing with nothing else to gain, they just have to say the truth. This is true of my life. And it's backed up. Paul says that's where salvation shows up. It's important we look at uh, 
Eugene Peterson's translation, his paraphrase of the same verse in Romans 10, read it this way. It says, it's the word of faith that welcomes God to do, to go, to work and see, set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master. That's the whole point. Embracing body and soul, heart and voice, God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. Peterson translates it by saying, you're not doing anything. You're calling out to God and trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation. It's a surrender of my ability to save myself. It's a surrender of my knowledge that anything I can bring to the table works in this relationship. It's a surrender and a submission that God alone does the work. God alone can save, and God alone is the only one who has the right to be called Lord. That's the confession being made. It's not a simple speaking of vowels. It's not that. There's a larger Jesus is my master happening. A confession is something of helplessness in this scenario, a call of, uh, of rescue that's being sent out. Surrender is the heart of salvation, where you and I would willingly look at our own lives, look at all of our best efforts, and we would say that life is only in risen Jesus. That's the only place I find life. It's the only place I find hope. It's the only place that there's any way out of the mess I've gotten myself in, to say, Lord, you did it. Jesus, you alone heal and save. Jesus, you are Lord and I am not. And then if we really get there, Jesus, not my will but yours. Father, not my will but yours. Got a big decision coming up. I really want this. Let me see if I can find a way to justify it. Versus, I got a big decision coming up. Doesn't matter what I want. God, give me clarity hold it up to the scripture. Does is some part of this violate your principles? Does some part of this become endorsed by what you've asked me to do with my life? Jesus, your will, not mine. To deny myself is to find life in Jesus. And an unwillingness to deny myself, an unwillingness to surrender who I am and the life I lead to Jesus is to say, I think I can still cover it myself. I think I'm still Lord. I can call him Lord. That's his nice title, but I think I'm still in charge. But to deny myself is true submission. It's true surrender. It's what gives me life. It's what I'll give my life to. That's the differentiator. And it's wildly countercultural because in some ways, nobody's going to invite you to do this in the outside world. How silly of you to give up your agency. Your agency matters. How silly of you. And Jesus says, your agency leads you down a path you don't want to go down to. But if you give your agency to me and you allow me to lead you and guide you and direct you, and yes, you have choices to make, and yes, you're going to go the wrong way, and, and yes, this is not like, like some sort of out-of-body experience where now you're being guided like someone has a joystick and they're just working you through life. It's an every moment surrender. Jesus, which way now? Jesus, how does this make sense? I don't get that. It's a wrestling. It's a fighting. It's difficult, but it's submission to go. At the end of the day, if you say jump, I say how high. But surrender sounds like losing. Surrender is retreat. Surrender is quitting. Surrender is giving up. And surrender is what Jesus invites you to. Jesus invites you to wave the white flag over your own ability to be Lord of your life. How in the world where surrender is quitting and everything about it is negative. Can that be a positive thing? We talk about it all the time. Jesus inaugurates an upside-down kingdom. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The least shall be greatest. 
Jesus invites us into a kingdom where the things we think are flipped upside down. You want to save your life? Lose it. Jesus gained victory in defeat. Jesus surrendered to authorities and to the will of the Father. To surrender to the Romans was to to surrender to the will of the Father, to take on the cross willingly. He took on death to offer us life. He willingly surrendered himself in defeat. And in his defeat on the cross, we, through him, became victorious. Surrender is the path to victory in the Christian life. So to us, the white flag is no longer a symbol of defeat, but it's a symbol of victory. It's a symbol that we will not fight for our own victory because it's already been won in Christ. It's not something weak, but it's strong. And the only thing I'm actually quitting is the delusion that I can save myself or that I'm qualified to be the Lord of my life because I'm not. So when we say Jesus is our firm foundation, that Jesus is our rock, he's our hope, we mean it. We mean that Jesus is our entrance into the life of flourishing. And the places in my life where I am not flourishing, the places in my life where I find myself in the deepest valleys— the things I can control that I've led myself into some, some cul-de-sac that I can't find my way out of, we go, Jesus, where are you in this and what are you asking me to do? How did I get myself here and how can you get me out? Because when the rain comes and the wind blows and the waves crash, if we're on our own, on that broad path, Jesus tells us where that leads. And if we're in him, then no matter how it hurts, no matter how it feels dangerous and how we feel insecure, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're invulnerable with me. You're safe with me. You're secure in me. You're hidden in me. You've lost your life, and it's now in me. Surrender is the distinguishing factor in authentic saving faith. So today, my invitation is this. You may have noticed that by the communion table, I have white flags. Had to give you one. Two tables here and one in the back. We have flags for you. I'd like to invite you to surrender and find white flag faith. And this is going to look different for everybody in here. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you may be coming to the table going, you know what, there is this one area in my life that I kind of feel myself gripping a little too tightly. There is this part of my business or my career or my spouse or my children or who knows. And you go, I got to let that go. My health, I got to let that go. I got to surrender Jesus. You know the way. And so for you, after you take communion, after you take the bread that represents the body and you take the juice that represents the, the blood of Jesus. Maybe you pick up that flag and that flag represents something real specific to you in your life that you have to surrender to Christ. Maybe you're in here and you would say, I said the magic words. I've done some good works. I don't know that I've ever fully turned my life over and really surrendered the fullness of my life. Your opportunity today is as you come to the table as you take communion, as you pick up this flag, this flag becomes a flag of authenticating, saving faith. Not the act of grabbing it, but the symbolism of what is happening in you today, that you are choosing today to be identified with Christ. To say it's no longer I who live, but it's him who lives in me. It's his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what my pledge is. And so you'll pick up the flag and no one will know different from you or anyone else that picked up a flag today. Because my hope is everybody goes home with one. But you will know that today is the day that you are literally putting your flag in the ground and saying, I will be identified with him and him alone. That I will surrender who I am so I will be who he's called me to be. And as we do that, my invitation this week is you would grab your flag, you'd put it somewhere you can see it, put it on your car antenna. Do cars still have antennas? I don't know. The prayer for all of us is that as we again, make the step to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. That we would find 
that our lives are lost in him, we can actually start living out the victory that he's brought to us. Because the life of surrender is the life of eternal victory, and it starts today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, um, your word is at times challenging, and yet uh, so full of grace. Father, we are grateful for uh, the clarity of what it requires of us to know you, to truly know you. Not simply to be your, um, your workers, but Lord, to be surrendered to you in a real and true way. Father, for those in this room for whom this is a struggle, who are challenged by this in a way that, that feels like, have I been living a lie? God, I pray that you would um, you'd be with them. It's a journey of faith. Father, as we each surrender our thing, whether it's uh, our whole lives or some small aspect no one would ever have known that we were holding on to for ourselves. God, would you honor that surrender? Would you meet us in this place? Would you show us who we are to be? God, as we find our lives more and more and more in you, submitted to you and surrendered to you, would you show us what that path of flourishing looks like? Would you be with us along the journey, even when it takes us into places we didn't expect or we didn't want to go? Father, you are in charge. Be in charge of our lives today so that we might live the life you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.